Good evening. I want to talk to you tonight from my heart on a subject of deep concern to every American. In recent months, members of my administration and officials of the Committee for the Re-Election of the President, including some of my closest friends and most trusted aides, have been charged with involvement in what has come to be known as the Watergate Affair. These include charges of illegal activity during and preceding the 1972 presidential election, and charges that responsible officials participated in efforts to cover up that illegal activity. The inevitable result of these charges has been to raise serious questions about the integrity of the White House itself. Tonight, I wish to address those questions. Last June 17, while I was in Florida trying to get a few days rest after my visit to Moscow, I first learned from news reports of the Watergate break-in. I was appalled at this senseless, illegal action. And I was shocked to learn that employees of the re-election committee were apparently among those guilty. I immediately ordered an investigation by appropriate government authorities. On September 15, as you will recall, indictments were brought against seven defendants in the case. I discounted the stories in the press that appeared to implicate members of my administration or other officials of the campaign committee. Until March of this year, however, new information then came to me, which persuaded me that there was a real possibility that some of these charges were true. Today, in one of the most difficult decisions of my presidency, I accepted the resignations of two of my closest associates in the White House, Bob Haldeman, John Ehrlichman, two of the finest public servants it has been my privilege to know. Because Attorney General Kleindeast, though a distinguished public servant, my personal friend for 20 years, with no personal involvement whatever in this matter, has been a close personal and professional associate of some of those who are involved in this case, he and I both felt that it was also necessary to name a new attorney general. The counsel to the president, John Dean, has also resigned. This office is a sacred trust, and I am determined to be worthy of that trust. Looking back at the history of this case, two questions arise. How could it have happened? Who is to blame? Political commentators have correctly observed that during my 27 years in politics, I've always previously insisted on running my own campaigns for office. But 1972 presented a very different situation. In both domestic and foreign policy, 1972 was a year of crucially important decisions, of intense negotiations, of vital new directions, particularly in working toward the goal which has been my overriding concern throughout my political career, the goal of bringing peace to America, peace to the world. 
And that is why I decided as the 1972 campaign approached that the presidency should come first and politics second. To the maximum extent possible, therefore, I sought to delegate campaign operations to remove the day-to-day -day campaign decisions from the president's office and from the White House. I also, as you recall, severely limited the number of my own campaign appearances. Who then is to blame for what happened in this case? The easiest course would be for me to blame those to whom I delegated the responsibility to run the campaign. But that would be a cowardly thing to do. I will not place the blame on subordinates, on people whose zeal exceeded their judgment, and who may have done wrong in a cause they deeply believe to be right. In any organization, the man at the top must bear the responsibility. That responsibility, therefore, belongs here, in this office. I accept it. And I pledge to you tonight from this office that I will do everything in my power to ensure that the guilty are brought to justice and that such abuses are purged from our political processes in the years to come, long after I have left this office. Some people, quite properly appalled at the abuses that occurred, will say that Watergate demonstrates the bankruptcy of the American political system. I believe precisely the opposite is true. Watergate represented a series of illegal acts and bad judgments by a number of individuals. It was the system that has brought the facts to light and that will bring those guilty to justice. A system that in this case has included a determined grand jury, honest prosecutors, a courageous judge, John Sirica, and a vigorous free press. It is essential now we place our faith in that system, and especially in the judicial system. It is essential that we let the judicial process go forward, respecting those safeguards that are established to protect the innocent, as well as to convict the guilty. It is essential that in reacting to the excesses of others, we not fall into excesses ourselves. On Christmas Eve, during my terrible personal ordeal of the renewed bombing of North Vietnam, which after 12 years of war finally helped to bring America peace with honor, I sat down just before midnight. When I think of this office, of what it means, I think of all the things that I want to accomplish for this nation. Of all the things I want to accomplish for you. Tomorrow, for example, Chancellor Brown of West Germany will visit the White House for talks that are a vital element of the year of Europe, as 1973 has been called. 
We are already preparing for the next Soviet-American summit meeting later this year. This is also a year in which we are seeking to negotiate a mutual and balanced reduction of armed forces in Europe, which will reduce our defense budget and allow us to have funds for other purposes at home so desperately needed. It is the year when the United States and Soviet negotiators will seek to work out the second and even more important round of our talks on limiting nuclear arms and of reducing the danger of a nuclear war that would destroy civilization as we know it. It is a year in which we confront the difficult tasks of maintaining peace in Southeast Asia and in the potentially explosive Middle East. There's also vital work to be done right here in America to ensure prosperity. And that means a good job for everyone who wants to work to control inflation that I know worries every housewife, everyone who tries to balance a family budget in America to set in motion new and better ways of ensuring progress toward a better life for all Americans. I looked at my own calendar this morning up at Camp David as I was working on this speech. It showed exactly 1,361 days remaining in my term. I want these to be the best days in America's history. We must maintain the integrity of the White House. And that integrity must be real, not transparent. In recent years, however, the campaign excesses that have occurred on all sides have provided a sobering demonstration of how far this false doctrine can take us. Tonight, I ask for your prayers to help me in everything that I do throughout the days of my presidency to be worthy of their hopes and of yours. God bless America and God bless each and every one of you. All right, so we're back with an unintended, unexpected sequel to our JFK episode. Uh, you know, this is a big one. I feel like we cracked the whole kind of like mystery of, of Watergate in a way that, you know, people, we need to emphasize up front that, you know, people need to kind of appreciate what we've, what we've accomplished here because it is, it is a big deal here. Yeah. What we've, what we've managed to. <laughs> yeah, it's, Watergate is... You know, this uh, incredible moment, not only in like American political history, but just culturally um, set, you know, it set so many precedents about how we understand the government, but also gave us, you know, myths like the uh, muckraking journalist. Uh, you know, it, it made the Washington Post career. You know, th this is a huge event that has never been really explained properly, I think. No, it really hasn't. It, it, that's that's the whole thing with 
what Bob Woodward uh, is really guilty of here. And there should be kind of like I don't understand. There should be uh, you know, some kind of um, sense of the of how bad what he did was uh, in kind of creating this this myth of Watergate and uh, you know breaking it all down and doing the journalism and deep throat and it, it's like not only is this just a lie. Uh, you know that's not even the the main problem of it for me. It's like this this has kind of uh, become this this huge barrier to understanding how things operate, and also just like it's it distorts everything, right? It, it has far ranging consequences in the right. in our ability to even you know conceptualize uh, so many things. It's just like you know he wrote this bullshit kind of spy story about himself, basically. Yeah, and it's like straight out of like three days of Condor or something. Like when you go back and you look at it in light of like what we'll be talking about, and it's like his version is completely unbelievable. Like, you know, you got this like secret guy meeting in garages. He's using, you know, this name that's the name of a porn movie, and he's got these, you know, dirty secrets, and these journalists have to, you know, risk life and limb to get them out. And it just, you know, it, it is a completely fabricated tale. It is, and it just like looms over everything in the way that people understand this. I think that this is probably one of the main sources that a lot of people out there are familiar with in how they, uh, what, just what their base knowledge is about what we're going to talk about. And so there, there's a lot to kind of clear away and a lot to also, um, you know, build up as the appropriate context that we're going to be. Uh, talking about with Watergate because this show is going to be way uh, longer than just talking about Watergate. This is a kind of far-ranging enterprise that we're involved with right now. Yeah, it's going to cover about, what, a 30-year span, I guess? You know, tail end of World War II through the 1970s? So, you know, I want... uh, people not to feel pressured basically when you're listening to this i have no idea how long this is going to be as we go into it but you know this this isn't a, a disposable product here this isn't your uh, you know red scare podcast or whatever no offense <laughs> red scare ladies uh, this is this is some serious historical research has gone into this of many many hours uh, how many hours? I, I was trying to even think about how many hours this total I've I've spent uh, looking into this stuff. It's uh, I don't know, like a hundred plus hours. I have no idea. Yeah, well, like I guess we've been working on it. We started working on it basically, I think, the day after we did our JFK episode, right? Mm-hmm. Which was what three weeks a month ago. I, I don't know, but it's been pr- pretty constant. You know, pr- pr- every waking moment for me has pretty much been dedicated to this. I got knocked out of commission for like a little while that threw me off, but like, you know, I feel like I kind of compensated by really doubling down after that. I was literally up, uh, you know, not last night, the night before I was, I stayed up all night, basically just cross-referencing all these, all these books of like Nixon's memoirs against like biographies of Kissinger and stuff. And it's like, uh, just looking at the same account in all these different books of just a single event. And, you know, there's differences in every account that you see. And, you know, we really work to kind of reconcile all those different accounts and, you know, Mm -hmm. try to find kind of an overarching uh, explanation that can both explain the the disparities, but, you know, also uh, 
you know, bring this whole history into alignment and synthesize it into kind of a single... Right. And also, I think this, like, if there's other people who are interested in looking into this kind of thing, I think that this is a really good, like, thing for them to keep in mind. Because when you look at, like, an event like Watergate or an event like the JFK assassination, you can always find these little minute differences across all the accounts. You got to look at where these accounts come from and who produces the differences in them and start tracing back the narrative lines. And it's through that that I think you start to help, like, get a clearer idea. And also, you know, it brings new things to light along the way as well. Yeah, it's not necessarily a case that uh, people are lying necessarily. Mm -hmm. It's it's, it's all about what their perspective is. Where are they coming from? What do they care about when they talk about an event? Because everybody is going to have a a different uh, meaning that they attach to certain events based on how it's affecting them, right? And it's going to you know, in some cases cause people to be myopic in a, in a way that prevents them uh, from giving an account of, of the events that, you know, understands what their significance is. You, you might have some people who are definitely on the sidelines, like one guy, the Colson, Charles Colson, who's a member of Nixon's um, administration, uh, you know, provided a lot of you know, testimony about what people are seeing in the White House. And I think that he just, he didn't have a perspective of a lot of this, the broader context that was going on. So uh, he's, he's kind of like framing all of the different things that he's saying against kind of like his own theory about what's going on in the same way that we have our theory about what's going on. And it's like, right. you, you have to take all of this into account and you have to, you know, really cross-reference all of these you know, different versions of stories and you'll, that's, that's where you'll start kind of finding, um, you know, the, the deeper connections between people's interests, the interests they have as they're giving accounts of different things. Yeah. And I think that that's really important with Watergate because like, as we'll talk about, Watergate is really just a clash of different interests and also alignments between different interests. So there's, you know, a, a lot of things are moving and there's a lot of worldviews that are in motion. And that does produce the narratives that people say about this event. Yeah. And I, so what we've decided to do is we're going to start out talking about uh, what is going on in the world generally, uh, kind of in 1968, the year of the election where Nixon uh, is wins he beats humphrey he wins the presidency and we're just kind of trying to build up the context of this uh, whole situation because there's a lot that even going into this show i was you know not that familiar with yeah and there's there's definitely a lot to learn here so people should firstly take your time as you listen to this you know you don't have to listen to it all in one setting i recommend that if you uh, feel like you don't know what we're talking about you should uh, take a moment. You can definitely look up some information yourself. We're going to be talking about different books that we've used in doing this. You, know, you should check those out if you're interested in learning more about any of these subjects. Um, and just, you know, welcome to follow along with us. Uh, you know, I, I've, I'm really happy with what we have come up with here. Um, you know, I, I got, maybe I got to do an advertisement or something because it's like, I don't <laughs> usually like to shill for myself in any way, shape or form. Uh, you know, I don't want to 
make a, a podcast with you know, Dasha or something and then go on the whole thing, you know, asking everybody for all their support or whatever, like it's the most important thing in the world. <laughs> but this is one this is one time where I will kind of uh, stand stand up for the the work that we've done on this, right? And yeah, you know, people, you know, if if you like this, you gotta share it with people. Uh, send it to your friends or whoever. You know, give us give us some love on this one. Repost or I don't know. Uh, you just we really appreciate just you know the great support from from just listeners and doing this because now we got like hookups like getting us stuff digitized at the Hoover Institution. Yeah, I'm, I'm so excited about that. <laughs> like met so many cool people like right off the JFK one. I'm really glad that people like this kind of work. Yeah, it's great. There's there's some really great listeners out there who are actually really helping us out in a lot of big ways. Uh, you know that I just I love. I gotta give them so much uh, support here because we just get all these books. People are like scanning these books for us, like getting interlibrary loans and stuff, and they have scanning machines at their house and they're literally scanning these books and like getting us PDFs. Yeah, I, I had somebody rip and digitize uh, Hogan's Secret Agenda from archive.org. Cause you know, they, they have it now where you can only rent books for an hour, which is like total bullshit. But so like, yeah, somebody got me that PDF off that and you know, I used that book so much in this research, so that was really great. Yeah, and I won't, I won't uh, embarrass him or whatever by calling him out on the show, or maybe I will. His, yeah. his is twenty three AD. Thank you for for getting us these PDFs. That <laughs> yes. was really great for you. Yes, uh, but everybody should follow him. Yeah, I don't know if he wants that uh, at all, but but he just no. Uh, we can edit that out then. No, no, it's it's fine. Just you know, big big props to all the people helping out, and you know, we appreciate all the support that everybody provides, but. You know, you know, I'm just like in a, in a in a mood to talk about Nixon, and I guess that's the best place to start because yeah, uh, you know, this is what it's it's all about is this man Richard Nixon and and who he is and uh, everything that people know about him is is like so limited and so you know nobody really understands uh, fully. No, before like going into this, I was always interested in Nixon, but I didn't understand Nixon. Um, I'm not sure if I still understand Nixon, but he's much more complex and multifaceted and less of a caricature for sure than people present him as. Yeah, it's it's you know, my I guess my main understanding of Nixon for when I was like younger, when I was growing up and stuff and who Nixon was, was just like something like a Futurama or something. And he's a character on that. It's like, yeah, like a head in a jar or something. Yeah. And it's like, it is just a complete impersonation with, you know, uh, nothing more to it. It's like, the, and that's part of like, what's crazy about Nixon is the way that the media is kind of like totally poisoned his, uh, the perception of him with the public. Yeah which is probably intentional. Well, we know that there's certain people out there where it is certainly intentional. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Bob Woodward is, is one of them, but Jack Anderson, your, your, your time is up. We got your number here, buddy. <laughs> yeah, you're on the list. We got your number, buddy. Uh, so that's, that's definitely another one. Uh, but there are a lot of great books out there about Nixon. People are always asking me for some, you know, different good ones of, uh, you know, the, how to get a handle on Nixon. And there really is, if you want to understand Nixon, you're going to have to read like 
you know, a dozen, a thousand page books basically <laughs> yeah. uh, in order to kind of like reconcile all the different stuff about him. And get like a really clear idea of everything that's happening in that time period. Because it really is a, a pivotal pre- presidency. It's at a moment of profound change and like social areas and global, like the, the economy is, you know, coursing towards what we now call like the post-industrial society. Um, yeah, geopolitics is all transforming. Um, he's at the intersection of all these things and everything he does is reflective of those changes. You know, there's, and so there's different ways that you can go about, uh, reading about him. Uh, most of the best books about him are quite long. Uh, there's one called President Nixon Alone in the White House, which, uh, you know, is not really that informative about all the nitty gritty details of all the, what we're talking about, but it, it goes through and he uses notes that Nixon wrote to himself, like in the margins of his papers and stuff, while in the White House to kind of like put him in dialogue with himself. That's that's insane research too. I can't yeah. even imagine like doing that because uh, what the, this and this is part of like, who Nixon is and what we want to kind of. Ex- express here is that uh, one thing that you may not know about him is that he really was uh, kind of like one of the harder working presidents that I think that mm-hmm. we've had in the modern era uh, just in terms of like the research that he actually did for all of his different uh, you know things that he was involved with he never he was a person he really sat down in a chair and uh, read through all the different resources he could get his hands on and tried to understand them and outlined them and wrote them all out and, you know, wrote notes to himself in the margins about all of it and really developed kind of a sense of it and did it mm-hmm. f- for long periods of time. And uh, people don't give him enough credit for that. And then you have all those little margin notes and you have this, so you get this, a book like President Nixon Alone in the White House. Uh, it's, you know, just interesting because you get more of a psychological perspective of him because he really is an introverted guy in a way that a lot of presidents actually aren't. Mm-hmm. And it's underappreciated because like we were just talking about before we started recording, it's like all these presidents like Trump or Obama or, or Kennedy is that they're very much into the public aspect of being a president. And Nixon is a, a definite exception to that where that's actually the part that he hates. Right. And, he he is absolutely focused on you know the, the mechanics of governance you know he he if you go back through like eisenhower uh he is so key in every negotiation and not only just it, as a negotiator but having all the, like the the basis you know the like you were talking about collecting the information like he want he really strove to have the fullest picture of every possible faction every outcome like this was all incorporated into how he operated as a political figure so and i don't think that that's something you necessarily see with somebody like you know donald trump who nixon does get yeah uh compared to quite often like um i was using another another book erwin f gelman he has a two books out now one on nixon's uh you know early political career in Congress. And then the second one is the president and the apprentice, which is all about his vice presidency. I assume that it will be another one out at some point mm-hmm. on uh, his, his presidential administration, but very detailed books that actually, uh, you know, when I was reading through these, uh, you, you know, they, they really destroy kind of a lot of uh, ideas you might have about how these historical events actually played out 
uh, on a, kind of an hour by hour, day by day basis. Uh, because Nixon was really involved in foreign policy, and that's one of the main things that uh, we got to talk about. Because there's that's the the overall kind of history uh, of all this, and that was a, a thing with the JFK episode, right? Mm-hmm. Was that it's all about you know the CIA and Cuba and and Vietnam, and you know this is it's a big kind of world out there that we got to understand uh, because one of the one of the ways that we were getting into doing this Watergate episode is because we were really looking at uh, kind of the early origins of CIA operations, right? We were looking at Italy, Italian, uh, the Italian election rigging that the CIA did as one of it's like basically kind of like first mission Mm. when it was formed in like uh, 1948, right? Yeah. And so, you know, you have that period between 1948 and between when Eisenhower becomes president in in fifty three, and those are like the formative years where uh, how the CIA works nobody knows yet. Uh, there's a succession of directors of central intelligence that are trying to kind of bring this organization into existence. That mm-hmm. you know d- design how it works, uh, how is it organized? What are the different departments? Uh, you know, and that has a very kind of important history to it because this is all in the context of, uh, you know, the immediate post-war era and what America is trying to do and, and kind of get control of it, right? Right. Uh, you know, not only, you know, uh, military control or in control in terms of the CIA doing anything, but, you know, this is cultural cultural control and economic control and have we have this new system Bretton Woods we have the United Nations now we have NATO and this is a whole new world order and this is the essence of everything that we're going to be talking about because this is what is really ultimately at stake right when Nixon is president right cuz like you know we could take a lot of these different things but just i guess to mention Bretton Woods uh cuz this is really kind of the, the economic base for the entire, like the way that they conceived the post-war order. And so what Bretton Woods did is it simultaneously made it possible to uphold, you know, like a, a globalized market economy, but it also reined in the power of finance capital. Um, there were lots of financial regulations. Um, there were regulations on cross-border like currency flows, um, trying to think of what else. Uh, exchange rates were fixed, all of these sorts of things. Um, and this is very central to like, you know, to, to have something like the Marshall Plan, which was the reconstruction of Europe after the war, could only happen on the basis of, you know, Bretton Woods. This is uh, industrial development on a, on a grand scale. You're literally building the the world, rebuilding the world, remaking it. Yeah. It's a vast, vast project. I mean, I'm, I was just going into the, the prehistory of this, all this stuff. It's like you have to understand that this is like a whole, uh, it, it's giant. You, you're talking about going back to the League of Nations, basically. You're talking about, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the reason that this comes about is because of what happens in the interwar years and because of the failure of the League of Nations and because of the economic issues in the world economy that resulted from the failure to kind of resolve a lot of issues around uh, World War One. Right. And, and 
Oh, go ahead. You know, I was just going to say, and then, you know, uh, one of these key players in how this gets architected is John Foster Dulles, who's, you know, you have to understand when Nixon is vice president under Eisenhower, the, you know, John Foster Dulles is secretary of state. And he had been kind of like thinking very deeply about uh, this this world order situation since uh, World War One, since he was at, actually at the Paris Peace Conference in 1919. And, uh, you know, his, his uncle is this guy, General Lansing, who's uh, the leader of the U.S. delegation to Paris. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's an, a conflict that goes on between Lansing and between Wilson about, uh, you know, the League of Nations. And John Foster Dulles' like, uncle he falls out of favor with Wilson because he doesn't support the League of Nations. Yeah, and, you know... John Foster Dulles spends decades between the, the war years very deeply concerned about in, uh, all these issues of international finance and, you know, the problems of what's going on in the world economy and what's going on in Germany with its war debts. And we're going to have a, you know, there's this act of fear of through all, all these old guys who had gone through World War II of like the world economy basically failed and they, a lot of them felt like that was the cause of this new war. And they, they, it was important to them to put into a, a system into place that was going to make sure that peace was preserved. Yeah, like that's a really interesting point because the idea that a kind of globally unregulated market um, led to the wars was common on both you know the left the right and the center like on the left you have like Lenin wrote his book on imperialism which argued that you know the the pursuit of um, interests by the developed world and the underdeveloped or undeveloped world um, you know there was like a mad race for resources and investments in these developing markets that was completely unregulated and so Lenin thought that that is what ended up kind of like setting off a domino effect that ended up being World War One. But he's not unique in this, and you can find people on other sides of the political spectrum all kind of like, it's a little different, but they're all roughly coming to the same conclusion, which was that you kind of had this runaway system operating on a global level. Uh, you had the subordination of industry to finance, and that this is basically what turned into this uh, apocalyptic firestorm that swept across Europe. And it was like, yeah. after World War II, you know, there was new energy in revisiting ideas like the League of Nations to try to, like, get this uh, under control. But in a way that benefited certain interests, of course. Yeah, I mean, and this is basically how World War II has ended is, you know, you, people maybe they are familiar with some of these conferences that uh, happen at the end of war and the famous picture of like Roosevelt and Churchill and Stalin sitting yeah. next to one another. But, you know, there's there's a very long list of, of conferences that basically design the, the how the world is going to work. Yeah, there was also the, uh, you know, the Council on Foreign Relations had uh, a series of post-war planning, uh, like boards and panels and commissions and study groups. And these were mainly actually funded by like the Rockefellers and the Rockefellers were deeply involved in them. But uh, the Marshall Plan, for example, that definitely uh, came out directly from one of these Council on Foreign Relation groups. Um, And the way to manage uh, the economy of, like the Pacific economies, um, you know, your China's, 
and Japan and whatnot, all that is also kind of drawn out even before the war ends in these study groups. Yeah, and so it's it's as long you have like the Teher- Tehran conferences, the Cairo conferences, uh, and Bretton Woods is one of those conferences. It's on uh, July fifteenth, nineteen forty four, July first to fifteenth, mm-hmm. and. Uh, you know, it has representatives from 44 different nations who attend it. It's, uh, you know, they 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 meet together and they sign this agreement about how the world economy is going to work, right? And then, you know, following that, right. uh, you know, in August, there's the Dumberton Oaks Conference, which happens in Washington, D.C., at uh, this crazy mansion. Um, but you have, you know, the representatives from a lot of the, the kind of the, the major nations who are going to, basically come to be the the UN Security Council, right? And right. Nelson Rockefeller is at that conference. <laughs> and so is John Foster Dulles. And there's kind of a little, you know, there's conflict and different visions over exactly how this is going to work. Mm. And, you know, they, they follow that up and they have a whole separate conference in San Francisco for the United Nations Conference on International Organization, which, you know, has representatives of 50 different nations at it. And they uh, form all these different commissions, uh, to basically draft the charter for the United Nations. Um, so these, this is where it all gets designed. I mean, this was a big effort of the representatives, delegations from nations all over the world that meet in all these different places in Moscow, Quebec, Washington, D.C., Malta, Yalta, San Francisco. Uh, it's like, then they, they literally design the, the world economy and how you know, it's all actually supposed to function in a way to prevent another war from breaking out but also uh, to kind of develop the world. Yeah. And there's a couple like other points about the Bretton Woods that are really interesting. Uh, One of them is that the British negotiators had, they were, um, which involved John Maynard Keynes, the economist. uh, They had a vision where there would be a global reserve currency that wasn't owned by any one nation. Um, I can't remember exactly what the name of this currency was to be, but it would be backed by gold and silver. And the American negotiators really ran circles around this. They wanted the dollar backed by gold to be the global reserve currency and ended up basically sidelining the British. So with that instance, you can see how like there's already competing visions. Like it's understood that there must be an international order, but do you want something separate from nations or do you want a particular nation, the U.S., to kind of be the, the helmsman of this uh, order? So that's like – I think that that's really important. Yeah. An, uh, another is that the Soviets are actually like – Not participating? They're not participating, but they almost did. And there was like a lot of um, – this was very controversial. A lot of people in the U.S. were opposing the the Soviet uh, cooperation in Bretton Woods. And I'm not exactly like it's very there's a lot of different accounts of what happened. They refused to sign it. Yeah. Yeah. They, they refused at the very last moment, yeah. though, basically, like they were they were going to be part of it. And then they backed out. And, you know, this kind of starts to set up this uh, this world conflict. Yeah. And this is what, you know, the origin kind of uh, of the Cold War is in the sense that you have a guy like John Foster Dulles and you, you got to understand that it's. You know, I found this crazy. Is you have his his sister Eleanor Dulles is actually a PhD economist who has a lot of connection to uh, you know people like Hayek and and whatnot and 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 Keynes and knows all, all these people and uh, you know she's at 
the Bretton Woods Conference, and she's an economist there. And you know, this, she has, they have a definite set of views of what they're trying to do, right? And yeah, I would like to know her like views a bit more because from some of the stuff you sent me, it seemed like she was quite anti Keynes. Uh, yeah, she was. And so the fact that like the U.S. kind of blocks his proposal is very interesting to me. Yeah, I don't. I, she. I learned about this reading her just autobiography. It's not as yeah. you know important here because I, I don't actually know what influence, if any, she really had over the whole conference. But uh, the the point is that you know somebody like John Foster Dulles, he this is very important to him that it be done in a certain way. And when the Soviets are not participating in it, he clearly gets upset by that. Mm-hmm. And he's a very uh, major figure who's writing publicly in like Life magazine and taking a very anti-Soviet direction and writing a lot of screeds and in various public uh, you know magazines and, and journals and stuff about the danger of the Soviets. And part of that danger is that they're actually not participating in, in this system. Yeah, and I do think that um probably the u.s having the reserve currency was probably one of the motivating factors for why the soviets would back out because in that situation you do basically subordinate other countries to your financial system like this is a reality that we're still grappling with today Uh, because really that's that's uh you know the the what a lot of people have fought very hard to make sure is kept in place forever Right. Yeah. And like incredible expenses like this is, um, you know, this is probably going too far abroad. But the whole setup that we have of like offshoring jobs and letting the finance sector in the U.S. rise is to maintain our status as the global reserve currency. Uh, it, it, it By putting, you know, the, the factories elsewhere, you're guaranteeing that the dollar remains the the you know, the the currency that you do business with on a global level. And there's no competitor really for it. China, maybe a bit, but nobody is really wanting to invest in their currency at this point. So when you, I mean, after World War II, in the immediate aftermath, uh, basically by the end of the war, the U.S. at all these later conferences, uh, they are the dominant force in setting things up. It's sort of like they get their way. No one's really going to be able to challenge them. No, the, the other delegations aren't, you know, yeah. fighting them, right? Yeah, and it, it's also, there's another important aspect, which is the fact that pretty much everybody else has a destroyed industrial base, but the U.S.'s industrial base is pretty pristine. It's not, it was never touched by the war. Um, and so the... Americans not only maintain the global reserve currency, but for the few decades after the war, they are the global like exporter. Um, they are able to both underwrite the reconstruction of Western Europe and Japan while also servicing those markets until those markets are, you know, ready to really bounce back and be competitive. And, you know, right after the war, even you know, there's there's no Soviet military threat. Even no. you know we have the atomic bomb; they don't. It takes them until like 1950 or 1951 to actually build an atomic bomb. And so, in those first years, it's like uh, we're completely, really uncontested as uh, you know the overwhelmingly dominant world power, and we get to design basically how it all works. Right. And so, you know, we're 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 setting it all up how we want to set it up, and we're. We have the development of the uh, you know post-colonial world and you know Fran- France and, and England and Asia, and they're basically having to cede all their colonial possessions, 
And you have this huge question up in the air of like, okay, now we're going to develop all these nations, develop their industrial bases, uh, bring them into the international economy. They're going to be in the system. It's going to, you know, have a kind of it's a cycle that they're going to go through where we're going to underwrite their development through institutions like the World Bank, which is put in place, you know, at Bretton Woods, and we're going to mm-hmm. loan them the money to do it. They're going to build up their economies. You know, uh, having a built up economy, it's going to create jobs. It's going to make sure that the people who live in those countries, they have, you know, higher wages, they have more money, and they're going to be able to you know, achieve higher levels of education by doing that. And having higher levels of education and people, you know, having jobs and that's going to make those countries, uh, you know, civilized, right? And it's going to, you know, end a lot of the, the kind of problems that they have there uh, between, you know, you know, pre-national kind of systems of, of, of organization that are, you know, these, they don't even have a nation state, right? Right. And also like, the, it's also worth keeping in mind that the IMF and the World Bank at this point do not function like they do today. And a lot of like what they provide to these countries are extremely low interest, no interest loans that allow them to pretty much develop freely. Uh, there's not a lot of uh, restrictions that are placed on them. That's very different from today where they have loans that are uh, like conditional on like deregulation and stuff like that. So, I mean, by the time we get to the Nixon presidency, 1968, uh, you know, we have pumped a ton of dollars into the world economy through the Marshall Plan uh, and through all this financing. It's like we we put a huge amount of money out there. And the way that it's set up is that it's backed by gold. So we need to have a certain amount of gold in reserve in order to basically cover what all those dollars are worth. Mm-hmm. And at a certain point, it turns out, well, actually, the amount of dollars out there has exploded way beyond the amount of gold. Right. And I didn't really realize this, but um, uh, Johnson, apparently, there was a, a budgetary crisis that happened because of the combined uh, expenditures of the Great Society and the Vietnam War. And the reason that there was such a crunch was because at this point, around 64, 65, 66, um, Western Europe and Japan, they completed their post-war development and they were actively competing with the U.S. now. Um, And so this resulted in a decline in U.S. exports. And with the decline in U.S. exports, the the coffers, the U.S.'s coffers were going down and suddenly they could not cover the costs of the war and the great society. So Johnson started just printing dollars (laughs) in excess of the gold reserves. Oh, no. And yeah, which if your economy is growing and you print dollars, you're not going to really have an inflationary problem because inflation is a, a very key component is how fast money is circulating. Uh, the, the velocity of money does stave off inflation, but the economy was contracting as they're pre- printing dollars. So this starts triggering a rise in inflation around, I think, 67. 
Yeah. Uh, that's that's uh, so it really sets up because the whole thing in the seventies is like you we basically go through the Nixon presidency and then we get to the other side, and uh, the world is very different because at this yeah. point it's like you you really have inflationary problems and you have problems with the growth of the United States economy not being able to kind of keep pace with that, and you have now the oil crisis which then develops and you because now foreign countries are are definitely uh, asserting their their control over their their industries and their natural resources in a way where we don't have unlimited access to them and uh you know they're raising the prices on us and we can't afford you know uh, to enjoy all that as much and i mean that's that's kind of like in the 1950s when we're talking about kind of the classic era of the of the cia that's mm-hmm. part they're an extension of this that, that has to be understood is that they're not just running around just doing stuff arbitrarily is that their interests are very much aligned in this because they're they're going to Iran to make sure that you know we have access to the oil there that the oil stays under the control of British petroleum and it's uh, you know we're there's an enforcement system here at work to kind of complement the regu- regulations from an economic perspective as well mm-hmm. and the CIA is part of that. Yeah, and that's also true for Guatemala and probably Cuba as well, natural resource extraction. And, you know, we need all that, uh, you know, in order to fuel all this development. We need it to be flowing in the ways that we need it to be flowing to the places that we say at the price that we can afford. So, you know, this is how we manage everything. So, uh, you know, by the time we're getting into the Nixon presidency, uh, we had been doing this for a couple decades and... Uh, it was it had become a whole system that grew around all of this, right? Right, and it's not really running so hot at this point. Yeah, it's it's both grown to a certain extent where it's kind of like not as flexible as it was when it was growing. <laughs> it's kind of monstrosity. Yeah, it's it's like we love the movie, the Oliver Stone movie Nixon, uh, and a uh, big thing that they always invoke in that movie a metaphor that Oliver Stone really likes to use is talking about uh, this as an organic kind of thing and he that's really the way that you should try to understand it is that uh, all this stuff is kind of just growing you know in different directions according to the, the you know little according to the the interests of the people who run them and they have their own appetites as the movie says, which I guess is the best way to to put it, but it's growing in accordance with that. And, uh, you know, conflicts are emerging between kind of the different branches circling back on one another and, you know, strangling each other. It's like it it develops into kind of a gross little, like you said, monstrosity. And that's that's where some of the problems are really beginning because in 1968, uh, you really do have a developing sense that it's over, right? That America's done. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's an apocalyptic mood. Um, you know, it's a year of global protests. Yeah. Um, you're kind of, the, there's the summer of love has just passed and it's quickly souring, you know. Charles Manson's on the horizon. Yeah, Planet of the Apes is coming out. Yeah. yeah, there's like a lot of like early, like this is when you first start to really get like the ecological consciousness. Um, this this fear of like, you know, either we're going to overpollute ourselves or there's going to be a new ice age, which is like a really common trope. Um, 
I think the Club of Rome, which starts putting out like ecological reports, is in this time period. Uh, there's just like a lot of different factors that are all kind of pointing at this kind of general like millenarian type mood, I think. Yeah, people are, uh, they have a sense of this, they're worried about what's actually going on. There's a like, oh yeah, just like a, a loss of legitimacy over Vietnam. Um, there's that, there's, you know, the, the inflation crisis, which is coming up, uh, Martin Luther King and Robert F. Kennedy are shot. These are all things that happen in this time period. I mean, people, people are aware of that. And it's just like, there's a lot, there's a lot to it though, uh, because it's not just people view it definitely through the lens of kind of like flower power, uh, new consciousness kind of stuff. Right. Right. Where they, they, they always talk about like, this is the loss of our national innocence or whatever. And that's not really exactly uh, what it was at all. Uh, you know, this is no. this is kind of like we had a totally uncontested dominance over the global economy. And in 1968, that's kind of coming uh, to an end. And there's a question of like, what do we do now to preserve that or to, you know, uh, get into a new a new phase, recover from this? And so when Nixon is going out there and giving his speeches when he's going to run for, for president, you know, there's obviously – one mood of it is the domestic issues and the anti-war movement and, you know, Nixon's idea of the, the silent majority, right? Mm. But he's also talking overall about this whole issue. He's he's has a great speech like uh, America in the world city, which, you know, that he gives and he's talking like in our posture abroad and in our approach to the conduct of foreign relations and our, our structure of alliances and the terms in which we try to sell our ideas and policies, America is succumbing to a creeping obsolescence. Is a speech he gives in 1967, Ooh. and yeah, so this is a, a, a theme that a lot of people are hitting: is that uh, there's no optimism. You know, the theme of the election, kind of going into the Nixon years, is well, we're basically on the brink here of becoming, uh, you know, a second-rate power, and we've kind of, you know, we've entered a new phase of the Cold War. Is a definite feeling that everybody recognizes, and that foreign policy analysts are writing about. Yeah, and it's also during this time period, the, the 60s, is when the Soviet Union saw its growth at its highest point. Like, this was kind of the the economic golden age for the Soviet Union, like, rolling off uh, Stalin's, like, industrial mobilization plans. And this is when they start developing, like, a consumer market. And there's, like, a little bit of the thaw that we talked about in the last episode and there's actually like CIA analysts at the time were producing reports saying that the Soviet economic growth was basically on par with the U.S.'s in this time period. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, you can contest that like it might not be accurate, but this was an idea that was, you know, that people had and surely we're reacting to because we don't know what's going on over there i mean that was always a big problem that's one of the things we'll be talking about is our ability to estimate what the soviet union is doing but yeah um you know to put it in nixon terms about how nixon relates to this is that he was a very active participant in the development of this foreign policy right right uh so we can go over and look at asia and what's happening in asia like when nixon is vice president is that he's uh, has a lot to do with visiting all these countries. He goes on two tours of Asia while he's vice president in uh, f 
53 and or he goes in 54 and 56 and he these are very extensive foreign policy tours where he's going to New Zealand and Australia to uh, India Pakistan and Iran he's going to uh, you know Laos Cambodia Vietnam South Korea Japan uh, you know Taiwan and we we need to talk in that in that sense about kind of what happens with China uh, you know and the Korean War and what because that's very important to understanding uh, ultimately why Nixon is going to open up China and, and what that means. That actually has a lot to do with what Watergate is going on about, uh, you know. Yeah, like I, th- I think this is the most like important and neglected avenue into the Watergate story. Yeah, I, uh, people, uh, I was surprised looking into it about how how deep it actually goes because people are familiar with you know that China that Mao takes over China the communists win I mean that was obviously a, a long uh, thing that was going on before even World War II was you know the mm-hmm. the the communists were uh, rising and World War II kind of staved that off for a while but then after the war uh, well they come back and now they're they're poised to take over the country so this was a whole crisis that, yeah. that developed uh, in the late 40s yeah and the the opposition i or you know the the people that mao was fighting against was the uh, kuomintang the the kmt and this was led by uh, chiang hai shek and the us obviously was not interested in mao um you know coming to power so during like towards the end of World War II, there was a very active effort to support the KMT. And, you know, obviously this was also key because you also had the question of Japan, which was, you know, moving in through Chinese territory. So you boost the KMT, you hold off both Mao on one side and Japanese forces on the other. Then you can build up China as a counterbalance against Japan. Um I think these are the various factors that really motivated U.S. wartime policy. And so a lot of this was done through OSS, the Office of Strategic Services. And so you got, you got to tell, you just, you got to say, because this is like, uh, you know, so crazy about uh, the drugs in particular. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so the the OSS was very active in China in support of the KMT. And the it was OSS Detachment 202 or 203, I can't remember which, but it was overseen by a guy named Paul Helliwell. And so if you want to, you know, everybody knows about like the CIA's role in drug trafficking. Well, this is really where it begins. It begins with the OSS. It's, uh, oh, by the way, it's 202 specifically is the... 202, okay, yeah. thank you. Yeah, Um so you had a lot of people in this unit that become very important later. They include uh, E. Howard Hunt. Um, they uh, a guy named Lucien Conine is active here. He's not officially part of the unit because he's like a, a French fighter, but he is like cooperating with them. Um, trying to think of some more people who were in it. Uh, guy named Willis Bird who becomes important a little later. And it's called the Sino, the Sino American Special Cooperative Agreement. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it, it sets this up, right? It's, it's related to the U.S. Navy Group China, mm-hmm. Chinese intelligence, and, you know, American uh, intelligence. And so, uh, you know, this, this is an underrated aspect of, of all of this. 
this this is literally like a forgotten history and it, it blows my mind because this was such a huge deal like this is really where what becomes the cia gets a lot of its like experience in covert actions they start to hone the different things that they're doing including drug trafficking because heliwell what he does to pay people he pays them in bars of opium at this point um and he starts working with a pilot named uh, Claire Chenault, and he, they organize what's called Civil Air Transport. And Civil Air Transport is the CIA's first proprietary like airline company. It later becomes something called Air America and then gets replaced with uh, Southern Air Transport. So all these things do ultimately stem from the OSS's operations in China. Like, it, it's... It, and um, trying to think, it goes it goes along with they another one they set up ultimately is a, a, a um, sea supply company, right? And, and I was I, I need I meant to clarify this because sea supply has a really long kind of history, and the thing is is that everybody who is in China with the OSS repeats and. Like the CIA just does like a direct redux just a few years later. And so I can't remember if sea supply starts under the OSS or if it starts under the CIA. Uh, you might be able to clarify that a little more. Uh, oh, I mean, it's 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 a, a very continuous thing in the operations that they, they undertake here. I mean, to just go to Claire Cheneau, uh so he was kind of like – He's famously associated with a unit – his particular unit is called the Flying Tigers. It's the first American volunteer group, the AVG. Mm-hmm. And so it's actually kind of like – it's in China. It's not an American military uh, unit. It's like a volunteer force. Air yeah, force. it's a, Ch- a Republic of China Air Force unit that is full of American pilots. And one person – this is a, a something that I've just been like tripping out about for several days – uh, John Birch, like the actual John Birch of who the John Birch Society is named for, worked under Chenault and the Flying Tigers and then got seconded to the OSS. And like this is literally where the John Birch Society like gets its whole thing from. And if you go through their like very early history, they're extremely pro KMT, like this is their whole gig. And so that's a, a, a common theme among what you might call the, the far right during this whole era, right? Mm-hmm. Is that... Yeah, uh, Douglas MacArthur, because um, he's in the Far East Theater and has his own intelligence operation that kind of competes with the OSS. Um, a lot of his people end up kind of intermingling with the CIA in this region when it starts up and, and also become kind of the core of the far right in America. Because what ends up happening, obviously, is that uh, MacArthur is a really interesting figure because he's he's uh, separate co- from kind of like uh, a lot of what's going on in Washington in that he's he has a lot of uh, weird kind of independence because he has his own little, you know, Asian empire, basically, that he's staked out. Uh, and he has a lot of loyalists who kind of form a whole sect onto themselves yeah. of like the MacArthur people, right? Yeah. Uh, one guy that particularly interested in is this guy named Charles Willoughby, who MacArthur called uh, my his pet fascist was his name for, for Willoughby. And Willoughby maintained this like extreme anti-CIA stance pretty much through his entire life. But it turns out that like he was having like weekly discussions with Alan Dulles. Yeah, and uh, you know this guy, uh, 
Claire Chenault is very important to all this because, uh, you know, he he's not just he's, he you know, starts out with this pilot, but he you know he ends up being like a major general. So going into like the post-war era and kind of like the operations that the early CIA is now getting up to uh, kind of control the communist situation with China is that he's a very key uh, you know component of that. Yeah, so the KMT is in Burma at this point in the post-war period, and they're basically just having all the veterans of that OSS unit support the KMT effort. And so you have um, Chenault's uh, Civil Air Transport and they're running arms to the uh, the KMT forces, and this is managed uh, by a company in Bangkok. Well, it's the the Bangkok offices of Sea Supply, which are being run by a guy named Willis Bird, who was former OSS. And the state side is run out of the main Sea uh, Supply offices in Miami, which is overseen by Heliwell. And this is located in insurance offices of a guy named C.V. Stark, who is another OSS veteran of the China group. And little fun fact is that this is how AIG gets started, American <laughs> International Group. Like, it's <laughs> fucked up. Like, like, the whole thing was that, like, C.V. Stark's companies would provide insurance for, like, the OSS and the early CIA. Because, you know, they need insurance, too. They blow up planes and stuff. And literally AIG grows out of this. Fucked up. It's blowing my mind. Yeah. And so you have kind of this international network. Sea Supply kind of, it's like a maritime company. It moves the arms towards, you know, Thailand. Uh, then the arms are unloaded up on the civil air transport planes. They're flown to the KMT. And then lo and behold, they're flying opium back in the empty planes, which is exactly, like literally like it's repeated in Iran-Contra. Like this is like, the standard technique of, you know, why bring uh, empty planes back, just load them up with drugs, which can then be sold in order to finance the purchasing of new guns. Um, it becomes this kind of international circuit at this point. So basically in, in, nine, in 1949, but though you get to the point where like the communists win in China, right? It's over. Yeah. And so this is basically triggering kind of like an emergency moment in U.S. foreign policy about what, are, what the fuck are we going to do, right? And... Uh, you know, it, it comes very close to basically, you, you know, we're going to go and invade China and, you know, it, it's a, and it ultimately becomes a very much a blame game in Washington over who lost China, right? And that's, you know, a big, you know, uh, cliche becomes because they, they're constantly asking questions about this, who lost China? <laughs> and MacArthur is uh, a guy that is often said to be the one responsible for having lost China. Yeah. His, his guy, Willoughby, apparently was, like, notorious at just fudging intelligence reports in a way that MacArthur would like them instead of, like, doing accurate stuff. So there might be, like, some truth to MacArthur kind of fumbling things, maybe not of his own accord, but it's pretty much guaranteed that he was receiving some faulty info from his, like, sidekick. You can even understand that MacArthur is also the one who's kind of like, you know, the new emperor of Japan. And during the, the <laughs> yeah. he's, he's overseeing the occupation, obviously. So, but he's, he's basically the, the dictator of Japan for a little while in there. Uh, mm -hmm. But also going into the Korean War, he's uh, a very much a, an important figure. But he ultimately, for all these things, ends up falling out of favor in the United States and having kind of his career ended because he, his, he, he reaches the point of basically just wanting to nuke 
you know, used nukes in the Korean War and like nuke nuke China. It's like uh, it, it, and push all the way into like he wanted to like nuke North Korea and then push U.S. troops through into the Soviet Union and keep like backing them up by nuclear power is how I understand it. Yeah. And it's, so it gets kind of like this is the extreme military kind of uh, lengths that the China people are wanting to go to eventually mm-hmm. to get China back. By the time it gets to, you know, 53 or whatever, the Eisenhower's coming in and stuff, it's like, you know, there's a huge amount, uh, you know, the, the war is lost, basically. You know, the, the, everyone has to go to Taiwan. Yeah, which this is another, like, important kind of turn in the development of U.S.-China-Taiwan uh, relations. Because at this point, like, Eisenhower's policy was not decided. There was a possibility of kind of like, okay, the uh, the KMT, also known as like the nationalist Chinese, they get Taiwan. We can normalize relations with China and w- with Taiwan. And this, you know, nobody's really happy about this, but, you know, it is what it is. But this guy named William Pauley enters the scene at this point. And he's, he, so you got to say, uh, first of all, he's also involved in like making, making planes before and during the war. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, he's very closely tied to, uh, you know, the nationalist Chinese cause. Back during the war, he was a plane manufacturer for Chiang Kai-shek. And so he's very, like, close personally, and he's probably, like, the direct intermediary from Chiang Kai-shek to Eisenhower during this kind of, like, moment when relations are up in the air. Uh, he was also very close with Claire Chenault, and helped organize the civil air transport uh, planes and probably played something of a role in that whole kind of Burma schema we were talking about a moment ago. Yeah, you were doing like the stuff that you were uh, able to get about his whole career. It was, you know, really great uh, the other day. It's just like uh, the story and just as like the fun fact is you had the Walt Disney kind of like. Uh, yeah, yeah, he gets like Walt Disney to paint the flying tigers on the on the sides of Chenault's planes, um, which I meant to bring this up when we were talking about that. Um, so Paulie becomes a leading member very early on of this group called the American Security Council, and this group is basically like it start it started by a couple of FBI agents, and the idea in the beginning is that they will collect documents on subversives in America and turn them over to the FBI. Very quickly, the American Security Council becomes basically the hub of the military industrial complex. They actually run a series of conferences that are called the the, the National Military Industrial Conferences, <laughs> and this is before Eisenhower makes that speech. So there's a lot of speculation that he's actually directly naming like this kind of uh, network of individuals when he made his like famous speech on the topic. But anyway, so Pauly is a part of this group and a lot of other key people, such as that Willoughby guy, he's part of it. And we can touch on some more later because they do seem kind of important to Watergate. But um, Walt Disney, not, not, you wouldn't even think that. This is the crazy thing about all of it. Yeah, yeah. Is that this is like, well, how does any of this even relate to Watergate? But this is what Watergate is about. No, no, no. It's all going to come around, man. It's crazy. Uh, Walt Disney is listed as like they have a they put out a document like the American Security Council thanks all their benefactors. And this was like 
I think in the late 70s, and Walt Disney's listed on it. So the fact that like Paulie's part of the American Security Council and he's enlisting Walt Disney to paint these uh, pictures um, on the planes. And then he's also a benefactor of the American Security Council. You know, it's all these all these people do know each other. And he also is involved with Cuba. And this is this is I think is just one important point to stress here is that when we talk about somebody like Pauly, it's like we're you know we're not talking about like just a, a spy or something or this guy's a businessman right he's an entrepreneur yeah he he's not on any kind of like intelligence service payroll this guy is just literally just a straight businessman but the businessmen have a you know they're very involved in this, uh, some particular businessmen that we're gonna Polly's one of them we're gonna talk about more is that they all have are very interested uh first professionally as you know they see you know, they decided basically to go into these uh, places and situations and be entrepreneurs, right? And to make money, they saw right. markets here to, you know, uh, service. And so they they set up a lot of companies to, to make money in these situations, but they also develop a lot of personal relationships mm-hmm. with, uh, you know, members of, uh, you know, country uh, the governments of various countries in Asia. And so they develop both a professional and a personal interest in this sense to kind of uh, protect this and to you know protect their their interests over there and their ability to do business and the the people that they know uh and for even for you know we got i got perfect chance to just bring up the the uh, main player here of anna anna chenault because you know, for for claire chenault he he gets married to this woman anna chenault and she is a chinese uh, woman that he meets over there, and she becomes a very important player going forward and in, into the sixties and stuff of uh, a member of what's called the China Lobby, right? Yeah, that's um, so. Yeah, uh, with, with people like Polly, you begin to form, like you said, personal and financial relations, and this does basically turn into a massive lobby, um, kind of comparable, no, absolutely comparable to, in its time, to what we would call like the Israel lobby today. Um, This was incredibly wealthy, connected people integrated into mainstream politics and covert operations. Uh, They have lots of legitimate business interests, but they also have a lot of like not so legitimate, such as drug trafficking. Um, They have, you know, ties to organized crime, especially in the Caribbean and the Bahamas, which is facilitated by the CIA. Um, and you could probably say that Polly is the person who starts, you know, if you're going to like pinpoint a start of the China lobby, it's probably with Polly. Cause like, you know, what's he doing when he goes to Eisenhower and is like U S policy has to be in support of Taiwan. Like that is, you know, lobbying. Yeah, uh, I mean, that's a crazy thing about it is because uh, these these businessmen is sort of like they they are definitely in coordination with this with the government and with foreign policy making and with uh, intelligence operations. But they're sort of like uh, you know they don't care. It's like they're and they have this ability to kind of just like uh, set up a lot of stuff in not only in Asia uh, but also Cuba. And yeah. th- these guys are going around and they're setting up basically, you know, uh, they want it a certain way and they're they're setting up kind of little wars all, all by themselves, basically. There's a direct line that you can draw between the Asian operations and the Cuban operations, uh, both in terms of like personnel, but the uh, outfits and companies and whatnot that are used. And 
you know, we talked about Heliwell. And so when he start he starts um, C Supply Company, which is used to like move arms to the KMT. Well, that's based in Miami. So it's very quickly repurposed into like a Cuban support, uh, um, you know, base running arms to like Cuban exile groups. And at the same time, you have um, a lot of former K- KMT soldiers come over and they have them training the Cuban exiles. And I don't know, it's just a good part to mention like Castle Banker. Uh, yeah, you know, we'll, uh, you know, I'm thinking that maybe for the next episode, we'll do like the whole drug thing fully. And I think Logo wants in on that. So we don't have to, yeah. but, you know, focus on the, the. Yeah, we don't have to go. Yeah, but I feel like, you know, it's the financial part of it. But this is where Castle Bank and Trust comes from, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. So Castle Bank is a CIA bank that is run by a guy named Paul Heliwell. Wait, we already, I already mentioned him. I don't know why I said that. But his partner, a guy named Bruce Cantor. So what this bank does is it moves, it starts off, it's moving a lot of like the drug funds that are being siphoned off this uh, whole Taiwan KMT operation. But it's also used as kind of the uh, the main conduit for paying for Cuban exile groups. Um, the, he, Heliwell is very much like the paymaster for something like Bay of Pigs. And it's all done through Castle Bank and Trust, which I think is based in Nassau, like in the in the Bahamas. Yeah, and uh, you know, a lot of celebrities actually end up using this. It's like a money laundering, uh, you know, little factory. This is offshore finance stuff. This is kind of like kind of where it starts. Kind of the origins, uh, yeah. Because yeah, when I was saying at the beginning of the of the show, we were talking about kind of how this is all this little uh, outside world, uh, outside of the the boundaries that we all have to abide by. Uh, this is kind of what we're getting at here because it's it's all integrated in terms of. Uh, you know the money that goes into it, and how that money uh, is is moved around in these in these shadow banks, and uh, you know it's uh, the the business investments that go into the organizations that get set up. It's like it, you know it's not just a little mm-hmm. a little thing where they they have a little spy club or whatever, and you know no. they go they go to what's the guy's name, Mister Q, and he has little gadgets for them or something. It's like this is legitimately an entire world, basically that's almost self sufficient and could be totally independent in terms of like its economic resources, its ability to procure resources and, and build things. And, uh, you know, it's, it's like it, the way that it has its own mercenaries and military, uh, you know, forces that, you know, from the U.S. Green Berets to like the KMT guys, it's all like one one thing in terms of what they have access to here. Yeah. And it's like they, you know, it's their own little world here. Yeah, there, there's a guy that people should really check out. Uh, he is like, I think he's dead now, but he really studied like offshore financing and wrote a bunch of great books on it named uh, Alan Block. And he writes a lot about Castle Bank. And he kind of sets it up to where it's like Castle Bank. Of course, it was all one thing, but kind of had two sides, like the CIA side and then kind of like this organized crime dimension. And so like Heliwell really handled the CIA side and his partner Cantor, who had all kinds of ties to like the Teamsters and the Las Vegas mob, he handled like the more organized crime um, aspect. And so you saw they, yeah. they uh, oh. go, go ahead, go ahead. I'm just like excited to even, you know, I just, oh, every chance I'm like, yeah, yeah. Now, now talk about like Meyer Lansky, man. Go, go, go. 
Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. So they had uh, they owned another bank. This was actually based in Miami called like Bank of Perrine. And so the way that it worked is like the there was um, accounts that Bank of Perrine would hold in Castle Bank and vice versa. And then there was a mob bank that was under Meyer Lansky's control called uh, the World the Bank of World Commerce. And so this also had like accounts that were interlocking with the Bank of Perrine. So you can see how like they would launder money through, you know, basically wire transfers through accounts, through multiple different banks. They're ultimately run by a CIA guy. And that's just kind of like mind boggling to me. You know, I mean, yeah. like it's not un- unsurprising, but when you peel it back, like that's literally what they're doing is that the CIA is running mob money at this point. I think people, people get confused here. They get dazzled because they, the, 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 the names are all in such a way that they're all so generic. It's like people worry about keeping track of, yeah. you know, what bank is, that's not the important uh, th- thing here. The important is understanding how this operation is running at a meta level where it's like you have uh you know the mob people like Meyer Lansky who's this Jewish uh, mafia guy with a very long history very very powerful and rich is that like insanely powerful he's the he's the boss of Cuba before Castro takes over and so he's involved with all the Cuban development right yeah of the economic aspect of uh you know business stuff going on in Cuba he loses lots of casinos. He, so he has his hotels and casino interests there. And, uh, you know, he pays uh, – how much How much was it? Uh, do you even remember that number? It's, I don't. It's like $11 million or something a month to the – Yeah, the, the, it, which in like 1954 or $58 or whatever. Yeah, it's uh, you know I think it was like it's a, like a 1.4 million a month or something in, in in contemporary dollars, and then that was like 11 million or something today. Yeah. But he's like paying that every month to the 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 you know government of Cuba in order to basically run all these operations out there. This is a big thing, and so he's also then connected to politicians like Nixon, mm-hmm. where he's you know helping them basically invest in Cuba because they have Cuba in the bag, right? So all these politicians know that because they're setting the Cuba policies and stuff is that they have a great opportunity here to make money through investing in all the development that's going on. And, you know, yeah. the mob is one of the avenues that they do that through. And then all the money gets laundered through something like, you know, Castle Bank and Trust moved through this whole financial network. And it's like then that financial network, when Castro takes over, is then used to pay out all the Bay of Pigs kind of operations. Mm-hmm. And it's like this. So you get a sense of the flow here of how this is working. Yeah. And the um, I did, like this is really interesting, founded in a book called The Great Heroin Coup which people should check out. It's really, it's really good. But it was talking about how Meyer Lansky kind of like, he was on very good terms with the China lobby and kind of, they, they co-invested in a lot of Florida real estate together and end up really building up Southern Florida. So that's also happening. We, oh God, we should do something about that, but we should do like a, a Florida episode. It's something I keep noticing is that Florida development is just a recurring theme. And then also like, yeah, uh, Paul, Paul Heliwell is, uh, gets a lot of the land for Disney for Epcot. 
when Disney does that. Yeah, I didn't really have a chance to look into that. Yeah. Like, what was the deal with that? I didn't either. Yeah, I didn't see this. We have to do a whole episode on Florida real estate or something. That's true. We'll save that. We'll save that. We got to do more research. But, you know, I guess to turn it to more uh, to what Nixon is doing here and what he's doing as vice president now that we've set all this up is that he goes on these foreign policy trips through Asia to all these countries where all this stuff is happening, right? And he meets all these leaders and all these politicians and yeah. lobby members. He meets Anna Chenault at, uh, you know, a dinner when he goes to Taiwan. Right, and so he's he's going through these countries, and this is something that people may not appreciate. Like, in terms of Nixon's like foreign policy experience when he actually becomes president when he wins the 1968 election, is that this is the background for his uh, you know knowledge of you know something like the Vietnam War, and he he totally outclasses uh, somebody like Kennedy or Lyndon Johnson by like a, a huge margin here because. Uh, he goes through these tours. He is briefed on every country that he goes to. He studies each one. He goes to like you know hours long meetings about each each uh, country that he's going through, right? And in mm-hmm. every country that he goes to, as he leaves from the previous one, the ambassador for the next one meets him, and then they brief. He gets briefed on the plane about the, anything new going on, and it's like not. Also, a, a, a settled kind of situation. It's not a publicity tour. The, at this time, you have, like we were talking about with Taiwan, is that you have a lot of uh, China exiles who are scattered over a lot of different areas, right? Mm-hmm. And that they're they're uh, you know all getting airlifted out slowly to Taiwan. And you know, see, Nixon goes to like a place like Hong Kong, and you know he's at the fence and looking over into communist China. And like seeing the guards on the other side and looking around and like seeing you have all these China exiles hanging around. There's tension, you know, between like, you know, the the Chinese exiles who are all over the place and, you know, uh, in the other areas where they're, you know, uh, waiting to be airlifted. There's a, there's tension about that of wanting to get them out and get them over to Taiwan, right? And yeah. So there's, there's, uh, you know, it's kind of like this is an important, uh, you know, geopolitical kind of flashpoint situation that they have going on at that right, right at that stage. And so Nixon's going around and he's he's meeting with colonial leaders uh, about the post-colonial situation, and they're kind of giving him, it, uh, you know, their perspectives about how they've had to deal with the communists. He goes to Indonesia. He goes to the Philippines. Uh, you know, he goes to these kind of remote places that, you know, Ed, Ed Lansdale had been involved with and in, where he had developed his counterinsurgency techniques, right? <laughs> yeah. And so uh, he he's hearing all these different perspectives about how uh, they've managed to deal with communism so far and what their advice is and their personal strategies are. And, you know, he's going to Vietnam. He first goes uh, when, before the French are out, right? And he meets like the emperor of Vietnam at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he, he you know, is going way back through all, all these, uh, you know, conflicts as they're really emer- emerging or in a very early stage or uh, a crisis kind of situation. Or There's lots of fallout still from Korea. It's like uh, he ends up in Taiwan and... The stuff that they ask him to do is crazy. Uh, you know, I, I told you, it's like they, he meets with the leadership in Taiwan and they're like, we got to fucking get China back. We want to go and launch a full-scale invasion of mainland China from Taiwan with 300,000 troops to do an amphibious assault. Yeah. And we, like, we want, uh, you know, full uh, support from the U.S. Navy and the U- U.S. Air Force, right? 
Mm-hmm. And so like they have this whole like crazy vision of like the U.S. It's going to be like D-Day 2 and it's going to be like the U.S. You know, uh, fighters and bombers and stuff flying in and the battleships and shit. It's, it's like it's, they envision, uh, you know, an immediate kind of like full scale military operation to get China back. Yeah. And that's a really good way to like understand why the China lobby and the military industrial complex are so close. Because you had a lot of like, this is what the China lobby wanted. This is what the nationalist Chinese were all pushing. Uh, they might not have ever put it in such as extreme terms as that, but this was kind of the whole idea. This is exactly, this is what, uh, uh, they did put it in these terms to Nixon. This is what they yeah. they wanted Nixon to do specifically. Yeah, yeah. But I was saying to like, when they're lobbying on like Capitol Hill, I don't think from what I've seen, no. it was never that extreme, but it was always like, we want China back. Um, and you know, you're going to help us. And so it was always kind of danced around the details of what it meant, but this is really what they wanted. And you saw them like so close with, um, defense contractors, especially like airplane manufacturers. And it's very clear, like that's a vested interest because this operation would have had huge expenditures and a lot of people would have gotten extremely wealthy. People like Pauly would have gotten extremely wealthy yeah. off uh, off such a, a conflict, which would have easily been a World War III type scenario, considering that at the time, China and the Soviet Union, um, they, they, they hadn't had their falling out at this point yet. Yeah, and so when Nixon is in Taiwan, I mean, he. so th- what I'm talking about is uh, he meets uh, Chiang Kai-shek, right? And when he goes to Taiwan. Yeah. Uh, and this is this is what he's told. This is what they told they want. And the, the Taiwanese, the, you know, the new, the new uh, government in exile for China is like, they're, um, you know, they don't want to take any advice from the United States about anything, but they want to tell us what to do. Yeah. They're very demanding about that. And it's, it's sort of like, uh, you know, they 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 feel like they are in a position to kind of order us, right? Because what Nixon has told uh, throughout Asia and all these other countries is everybody's telling him, if uh, basically you uh, are, you know, if this falls, if the communists win here, then everything else is going to fall, right? Yeah, this is where the domino theory starts to emerge. And so this is, this is like, uh, you know... At this point, they don't have any, uh, you know, they can't look back. They don't have the ability of retrospect here to kind of see hindsight 2020 or anything. Is that, you know, they're dealing with trying to predict this chaotic situation that has a lot of moving components. It's like, if this happens, if we let this country fall to the uh, communist forces or communist rebels, it's like uh, it it could really spiral out of control over the whole region. Uh, And... You know, so when by the time Nixon gets to Taiwan, which is later in the trip, uh, and meets with the the leadership here, is that you know what he says? It's actually not even. I said three hundred thousand. He has for six hundred thousand to invade South China. Great, insane, absolutely insane. He said, "If it is the desire, this is exactly what he says." Quote: uh, "If it is the desire of the United States to avoid a third world world war and at the same time to defeat communism, the only thing to do is to help us launch a counterattack on attack on the mainland mainland, which is going to consist of six hundred thousand uh, troops trained by the United States with air support and naval support." <laughs> I just it, it's it's a bizarre thing to like even 
like think of, especially today where Taiwan just is kind of a, a side thought in so much. But you're right. It's like the Israel lobby today. Yeah. I mean, yeah, these are the exact kinds of demands that are made. You know, it's in both cases, it's a client state that is originally set up, you know, by by external interests. You know, the, the CIA basically sets up Taiwan. Uh, you know, you have British and American interests that really help facilitate the rise of Israel. And they, you know, they 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 take over Taiwan. I mean, there's already people living there, right? It's like, yeah, yeah, this is like their own, like, a, a, it's, it is literally like a one party dictatorship that rules very brutally over Taiwan until I think like 1986 is when they allow free elections. Which is crazy to think about. I mean, that's one of the, the, the points here is that the U.S. is trying to tell these people like you can't do that. You have to kind of like be nice to the people who were already in Taiwan. Uh, you know, yeah. you, you can't, you can't, uh, this is not so great. And they don't want to listen. They don't want our advice. They, they want us to listen. They think that they are ordering us around to do this because if we don't do what they say, uh, you know, the communists are going to take over all of Asia yeah. and they know that we don't want that. So they, they think they're really kind of like have us over a barrel here and getting them back in control of mainland China. Yeah. And they probably think that a lot of their ties with, you know, some of the, you know, extreme hardliners, and business interests in the U.S. probably adds weight to what they're saying, yeah. which, you know, those people kind of always overestimate their uh, grasp on the, the whole of the political system. Yeah, so this is where, like, going forward, this is, like, where the Vietnam War is really coming from. Uh, and, you know, so all this is kind of connected. So when we get through, like, the, the Johnson administration and the Vietnam War and then going into the Nixon election, this is the background. So there's actually, it's much broader than just, like, we're in a war in Vietnam and we don't know what we're doing. It's sort of like Nixon is, from all these trips that he takes, uh, you know, he understands the, the the actual complexities here. He's not, like, a dullard or anything. Is that He studied all this and he knows... No, not at all. He knows basically that uh, the the advice that he's given by a lot of people is, like, we have to you have to support nationalist movements in these countries you you can't say that you're going to just stay there or anything you have you have to be anti-colonial the 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 the, the people there are not going to fight the communists for you if they have a feeling that you're um you're going to kind of replace their colonial masters, right? Right. And that's the advice that he, he gets is that you have to support freedom and independence from the United States and then they will fight the communists, but only then. And so, you know, this is Nixon's perspective that he brings back from these trips that he advises Eisenhower on. Uh, and you know he understands the whole the, the complexities of, the complexities of post-colonialism and the the business interests involved. I mean, when he's in Taiwan, and I don't know which specific trip, which of the two, where he does, but he meets Anna Chanel, which is going to be very important, obviously. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know he he meets her at a dinner, uh, and it sets up a lot of the relationships that we're going to be you know getting into. Yeah, like. Because it's when he runs for president, he ends up using like a lot of money and, you know, influence from the China lobby when he's running against Kennedy. But And so I think – oh, go ahead. No, I'm just going to say, I don't know, uh, we're almost at an hour and a half already. Do you want to take a, a, a break? Yeah. Do you want to take a, a, just a break as we go? This is actually uh, – I felt that was a really good 
clear first part of the whole thing. That was a nice section. Yeah. So I don't know. Do you want? To, I know that we covered a lot for an hour and a half. Yeah, and I feel like that also set up really well as a as a kind of distinct section of this. Uh, you know, so we can cap it here and then put an interlude in, right? And then you know, uh, go on to the next section. And so I don't know, okay. If you want to take a break here, have a cigarette, I'm gonna get something to drink, and then uh, do the next one. Yeah, cig sounds good. 